passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, uh, everyone. It is uh, great to be with you again. It's been a couple weeks since I've been up here, so it is uh, great to uh, be able to deliver God's Word to you uh, this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our, our journey through the book of Malachi. We've been here for uh, a little over a month, and uh, this morning is a, a passage that deals with a question that uh, we often hear today. It's probably one of the most uh, repeated refrains of our culture, and that is this— I can't believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people. Many of us have heard that phrase. It's relatively common in our culture, but at the same time that it's common in our culture, we would be mistaken to think that it is exclusive to our day and age. The root of this question, the question of whether or of why God allows some seemingly good people to suffer and why some wicked people seem to prosper, that question is one that has been wrestled with throughout the ages and it's been wrestled with on many pages of Scripture. This question is a question that each and every one of us may wrestle with to some degree. And it's a question that crops its head every single time there is a national tragedy. People will often pose the question, where was God after school shootings like the one in Florida last month? It is increasingly being used as irrefutable proof that God does not exist, that God is just a myth that he's something that weak-minded people use to cope with the uncertainty of life. Have you ever found yourself in a place where God seems silent? Have you ever found yourself where you are facing great hardship, great stress, where you're crying out to God and it seems like God is silent? Have you ever been left wondering, where is God when I need him? You face tragedy, sickness, even death touches those who are close to you, and you're left wondering, why? Why? Or perhaps you can relate to the psalmist. The psalms are filled with laments on numerous occasions, lamenting or asking God why the the wicked prosper while the righteous are those who suffer. Why is it, as we look at at human history, that some of the most evil, some of the most wicked, some of the most vile people in human history are also those who live carefree lives, who seem to enjoy so much from this world while the humble, while the righteous seem to be afflicted on every side? As I mentioned earlier, our passage this morning attempts to answer those questions, but I want to be honest, it doesn't answer those questions in the way that other passages in the Bible do. It doesn't answer those questions in the way that we probably would be expecting as we look at this question. As I mentioned, we're in Malachi. We're going to be looking at the very end of chapter 2, and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles and follow along uh, as I read aloud, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. Consider these words from the book of Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as we hear those words, they can be a little frightening, a little terrifying, a little rough. As we've been looking in the book of Malachi, we have seen that Malachi is in large part a rebuke. It is written in very harsh language. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that this passage really breaks apart in in three separate sections. They follow the paragraphs of this uh, of this passage. Three separate sections that really guide us in answering this question of why does God seem to be silent in the face of evil. So let's jump in and, and look first at verse 17. And verse 17, how does this explain why God seems to be silent in the face of evil all too often? But before we do that, we should remind ourselves of the context of Malachi. A generation or two before Malachi, the people of Israel returned from exile in Babylon. And they returned from exile in Babylon with one purpose, and that was to rebuild the temple of God. And they rebuilt the temple. And after they rebuilt the temple, God gave them some incredibly good news found at the end of Haggai chapter 2. Fear not, for for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Here, God is speaking to the people of Israel shortly after they accomplished their goal of rebuilding the temple, uh, of reestablishing God's presence among them, and God promises them that not only would Israel one day return to their former greatness, their state of prominence as a nation, as a kingdom before the exile, but also that God would dwell amongst them in a way that would actually surpass the glory of the temple the glory of the temple in Solomon's day. And yet, decades passed. And it seemed like God was silent. 
Perhaps you can relate to the Israelites. Maybe it hasn't been decades, but you read the promises of God's word. You read how God is going to show up in your way in a mighty life, and you expect that they will be there, that his promises will reveal themselves in your life in a more tangible way than you actually experience. You read passages such as 1 John chapter 5, says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And you read passages like that, and you wonder, well, then why do I still struggle with sin? Why is it that that I still struggle with complacency when I'm trying to teach my kids about God? Why is it that I still struggle with lying, with deceit, with cheating? Why is it that I still struggle with self-image, with this temptation to hurt myself? Kids and students, maybe you are wondering, well, why, when I want to follow God, do I have such a hard time listening to my parents when they ask me to do something? Why do I have such a hard, temp- uh, hard time dealing with the temptation to, to just blend in and be silent? And we can read these verses that talk about the promises of what God is doing for us, what God has said he's doing in us. And just like the Israelites We can be tempted to think that because God hasn't shown himself in a mighty way like we expect, that God is just silent. That God is silent and he doesn't care. And as time passes, we find ourselves further and further and further from God. And some of us even begin to wonder, well, that's if there even is a God. It's in that context that Malachi steps onto the stage and he assures the people of God that God does love them because God never changes. And if God loved them when they were at their most unloveliest, and and he did, then God, who never changes, will continue to love them no matter how much sin consumes them, no matter how much the external circumstances seem to say otherwise. But at the same time, because God loves them so much, He is not at all pleased with their dead religion. The people of Israel were just going through the motions, trying to pretend to be spiritual. They were giving verbal assent to following God while their actions and their hearts showed that they were very, very far from him. And so in this morning's passage, when we get to verse 17, we see the heart of the Israelites. The heart of the Israelites looks at the world around them and they conclude that because they can't see God at work, then God doesn't care about them. And if we're honest, sometimes we can find ourselves in that exact same place. Looking at the world around us, not being able to see God at work, and we can conclude that God must not care. And if we're not careful, we can be like the Israelites and we can throw accusations at God as they do in verse 17, as they said in their hearts, the the wicked prosper. So God must delight in them. He must delight in their evil deeds. In other words, God must be wicked himself. Or as they were also saying, where is the God of justice? God has abandoned us if there even is a God. 
These words are eerily similar to the questions asked by our culture today, aren't they? The, the exact wording may change, and yet it is very similar to the hearts of the Israelites. As we see national tragedies, like the one last month in Florida when students were killed, a tragedy beyond words, a tragedy beyond comprehension, one of the primary responses from a segment of our culture is to mock God in response. To mock even the idea of God in response. A vehement anger that people would dare pray to a merciful God for mercy in those situations. People disbelieve in a God of justice. They can't believe that God is a good God. They they doubt that there is a God, and if he is there, then he doesn't care. He must be wicked. He must be depraved, or he must be powerless in such times as these. And while these statements may be directed toward us as Christians, they are really directed toward God. How is it that God responds to these attacks on his character? Well, verse 17 tells us, God says, what a weariness this is. What a weariness this is. God hears the continual attacks on his character and says, I'm just tired of it. It's wearing me out. It's making me sick. Now, God doesn't get tired, but all these assaults on his character by people who can't even comprehend a drop of the oceans of God's mercy and wisdom. God's just tired of it. And so in this passage, as he's writing to the Israelites, as they're directing, they're throwing these assaults on his character at him, God says, what a weariness this is. Now, lest we think that this passage is only directed toward those who are outside of the church, pause and consider the ways that we also may be tempted to thinking that wears God out. Think of how we can assault God's character when we are faced with hardship in our finances and think that, does God really care about me? Because if God cared about me, then why is he blessing my neighbor who only cares about himself while I can barely make ends meet? Or the way that we assault God's character when we face tragedy or sickness or death in our lives and our visceral reaction is to just say, God, if you really cared about me, you wouldn't have let them get sick. You wouldn't have let that person die. Or think about the ways that we assault God's character daily when we know that the, the good that we ought to do as children of God and we decide to do other good or we decide to do otherwise. We know the good that we should do when we decide to do otherwise. This betrays a belief within each and every one of us that God isn't really a God of justice. God doesn't really actually care about evil because otherwise he would do something about it. And so we look at verse 17 of chapter 2 in Malachi, and we can be terrified. It's a terrifying prospect to look at this verse, which seems to hint that even the smallest doubt, even the smallest 
time when you're asking God why, based off of the circumstances, upsets God, makes him mad. Is that what Malachi is saying? Well, the answer is no. See, the Bible is filled with people who ask God why over and over and over again. The whole book of Job is basically 42 chapters of Job asking God why. And how does the book end? Well, the book ends with God blessing Job because in all of his asking God why, he never curses God. Another example is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. What a powerful word there, complain. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? If you're familiar with the life of Jeremiah, he experiences a great deal of evil because he is faithful to God, and yet, at the exact same time, he sees the wicked prosper. While he remains faithful and suffers, the wicked prosper. And so he asks God, he says, why? What we see later in chapter 12 is not that God rebukes him and says, don't even think about asking me that question. He says, justice is coming. Justice is coming. Another example is the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk opens uh, with the prophet saying, God, can you please do something about the wicked people of Israel? Israel is wicked beyond comprehension. Will you come and judge your people because their wickedness knows no bounds? Vindicate the righteous. Verse 2 of chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? And how is it that God responds? Well, Habakkuk tells us, and he responds in a relatively surprising way. He says, I haven't forgotten about it. In fact, I am doing something with Israel's wickedness. I'm going to send the Babylonians to take care of Israel's wickedness. And, and that catches Habakkuk off guard. After all, he says, well, well wait, the, the, the Babylonians are even wicked, more wicked than we are. Come on, God. How can you let those wicked prosper while your people are the ones who suffer? They're, they're even worse than us. So why don't you just bring judgment on them while you're bringing judgment on us? And God's response is simple. He says, no one will escape my judgment. Now we could go on looking at example after example of God in the prophets speaking to people who are asking him why. The Psalms as well filled with these questions. But why is God patient with Job? Why is God patient with Jeremiah, patient with Habakkuk, and yet he is fed up with the people of Malachi? Why is he fed up with the Israelites in Malachi's day? The answer is simple, and yet it is crucial for us to understand when we face tragedy, when we face hardship, when we are tempted to ask the question why, and it is this, when asking God why, don't lose sight of his character. When asking God why, don't lose sight of his character. Job, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, the psalmist, all these and more, they don't lose sight of who God is when they ask God why. 
When they are asking God why, they do so with a trust in God. They're saying, God, I know who you are. I know who you can be and what you are doing for us. So why aren't you acting like the God that I know? They're asking God why, but they're doing so with an implicit trust in the goodness of God. But that is not the case for the Israelites in Malachi's day. They are asking God why, but they do so with a sneer. They're looking for any chance, every chance that they have to prove that God is wicked, that God isn't worth following, and that is what wearies God like nothing else. Church, we serve an unbelievably gracious, patient God. He is patient with us in our simple-mindedness. He walks with us in our questions of why, the questions of we are trying to make sense of who he is and how that relates and how that fits into the evidence that we see around us. But be careful to not lose sight of his character when asking those questions, why? Do not fall into the temptation of mistaking that God's silence is a statement about his righteous character. And so God begins this section, he begins in verse 17 by calling the people out for the way that they are asking him why, the accusations, the assaults against his character. And then in verse 1, he continues. Verse 1 tells us of how he's going to to, uh, respond to these accusations. Take a look again at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God starts off with this word, behold. This is an important word. It means basically just pay attention. You're throwing these accusations at me. Now pay attention. I'm about to answer. I'm about to respond to everything that you are throwing against me. It's an assurance. God has not forgotten evil. And it's somewhat of a terrifying statement. Because God hasn't forgotten any evil. And that includes the evil that each and every one of us has done. Behold, pay attention. How does it continue? First, it tells us in this verse that he sends a messenger to prepare the way. If you're familiar with the New Testament, then you are familiar with the ways that this verse is often quoted to refer to John the Baptist. The beginning of gospel of the Gospel of Mark combines this verse with a quote from the book of Isaiah. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, you will, or who will prepare your way. The voice of one who is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You see, in ancient times, it was common for a messenger to run ahead of a a coming king to the villages or the cities that he was visiting, and he was there to prepare the people. He was there to make sure the people were presentable, that the roads themselves were smooth so that way the king's chariots wouldn't hit a rock and stumble. 
And here in Malachi, God says that he is sending his messenger to prepare the way for God himself. Follow the thought of this passage. Follow the thought of of verse 1. The people, they've been longing for God to show up for decades. They've been asking God, why haven't you shown up for generations? And God hasn't shown up. Why is that? Well, it's not the primary reason. We can never know the primary reason, but at least part of the reason is because God, because God sent a messenger, is because the people are not ready. The people look at the sins, they look at the wickedness of the world around them, and they're blind to their own sin. They're blind to their own wickedness. They're not pure. They're not prepared for God to be in their midst. As we see in verse 2, if God were to actually show up like they say they want him to, things would not go well. They would be terrified. You see, before Jesus came, God sent John the Baptist. And one of the reasons for this was to prepare the hearts of the people. It was to sow the seeds in people's hearts. Mark tells us again the, the purpose of preparing people's hearts. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all the Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. During John's ministry, a revival breaks out in Israel before Jesus' ministry begins, and he sows the necessary seeds of repentance that will eventually blossom into salvation through what Jesus does on the cross. So what God is saying here in Malachi is that he's going to send a messenger, and what comes after that messenger? Well, the Lord himself will suddenly come into the temple. Once the path is prepared, God himself is going to come, and God is going to dwell amongst his people once more. Now, perhaps the the confusing part of verse 1 is that there's another messenger mentioned at the end of this verse. We have the messenger who's going to prepare the way, and then we have the Lord who is coming into his temple, and then we have another messenger, the messenger of the covenant. This messenger of the covenant is clearly different from the messenger mentioned at the beginning of the verse. The rest of this section describes this messenger of the covenant. This messenger of the covenant is one who will refine the people of God. What's more, and probably even more important than that, is in verse 3. It says that while he is refining the people, he's doing so while seated. He's seated with authority as a king while he refines the people. This messenger of the covenant is written in parallel with the Lord whom you seek, revealing that this messenger is actually God himself. It's actually Jesus. Jesus is the one who is coming to refine his people. Remember the question that that Malachi, that, that God is trying to answer in this passage. The question is, where is the God of justice? Where is God's justice? In other words, why is God's silence in the face of evil? 
And how does he answer? Here in verse 1, he answers by saying Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. What's more, in response to the question, why is God silent in the face of evil? He says that Jesus is coming to dwell amongst his people. The glory of God is coming to dwell among the people of Israel, but in a way that they could not fathom. Jesus being fully God and fully man, God has an answer. God has an answer to the accusation that people are throwing at him, and that answer is Jesus. In the face of these accusations, it is Jesus that is the answer to God's perceived silence. Note verses 2 and 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. What is it here that Jesus comes to do? Well, he comes to refine his people as though through fire. And here we see a second truth of this passage, and that is this. Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that he is silent in the face of evil by refining his people. Jesus comes to refine his people, to get rid of the wickedness of the evil that, are, that dwells within each and every one of his people. One pastor describes this refining fire so well when he says this, Jesus is a refiner's fire, and that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It melts down the bar of silver or gold and separates out the impurities that ruin its value, burns them up, and leaves the silver and the gold intact. He is like a refiner's fire. You see, Jesus is the answer to God's alleged silence in the face of evil. And the way Jesus is the answer is by refining, by taking care of the sin of the people, by cleansing the people of their sin. Now, in one sense, he does this completely once and for all through his death on the cross. But also in the vein of this passage, he does so by purifying his people through the painful, refining afflictions that we find ourselves in life. When you find yourself in the fires of affliction, when you are stricken over the grief of, of the loss of, of a loved one, when you're paralyzed by a fear of the future, when you are slandered, when you are mocked, when you are mistreated, remember this passage. Remember that God can use any fire of affliction to purify you just like he purifies gold and silver. Refinement. Is painful. If you were to give me the option of running away from fire or running toward fire, if my loved ones weren't in that fire, 10 times out of 10, I'm running away from the fire. And yet, if the ones that I love are in the fire, I'm running toward the fire. I'm jumping into the fire because I know that the pain of the fire is worth the end goal. Now, and it's not a perfect analogy, and and probably the more I think about it, it's, it's not even a good analogy, but somewhat like what Jesus does with us when it comes to affliction. Jesus is the good 
trustworthy metal worker who is using the fire to purify us. He is the one who is refining us, the one who is removing the impurities from our lives, the impurities of impatience, the pure impurities of pride, of selfishness, of dependence upon our things, upon love for the world. Of course it's painful, but the one who stokes the fires of affliction is worthy of our trust. Now there's another metaphor from this passage that Malachi uses when he describes the refining work of God. He also uses the imagery of soap. When we stand in God's presence, we must be Purified, And Jesus is going to do exactly that. Before washing machines, before washing boards even, clothes in ancient times were washed with water and lye, and then they were set out on rocks and they were beaten with sticks. Aren't you glad we have washing machines? Clothes were beaten with sticks until the dirt was removed. Purification in this life, dealing with our sin, is painful. Becoming clean before God is painful. God allows us to go through hardship to purify us, but the end goal is worth it. Notice what this passage says is the purpose of all this in verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now, in one sense, the purpose of all this purification, all of this affliction to refine us is our own purification. It's absolutely true. But even more so, the focus of this passage is not just on our purification, but it is on the glory of God. God is concerned with purifying a people for himself that will worship him in a way that pleases him. Our purity is intrinsically linked to God's own glory. So if you want to bring God more glory, become more purified, see the afflictions in your life as opportunities to die to self, to die to the old man. The reason why God allows us to go through such hardship is because he loves us and because he has a great concern for his own glory, his own righteousness, his glory will flood the nations as water covers the sea, and his son, Jesus, will accomplish that by refining people of every nation for himself. Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that he is silent in the face of evil by purifying his people. The last verse of this passage gives us the alternative to the purifying fires of Jesus, a terrifying one. Note verse 5 again. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. If you are not purified by the refining fire of God's love, if you do not willingly face the fires of affliction in order to be refined as one of God's people, then a far greater fire awaits you. That's our final point this morning. 
If we saw first that Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that he is silent in the face of evil was by refining his people, it's also through judgment. This passage lists several sins that will face the fires of judgment. We could go through all of them. I just want to focus on the last one. The last one is this, those who do not fear me. Those who do not fear me. All the sins that are listed before this, both spiritual and moral failures, all of them can be summed up by this statement. You see, Israel's accusations toward God, accusations that are directed toward God today, they're all an affront to God's character. They ultimately boil down to a lack of fear of God, a lack of understanding God's perfectly holy nature, God's complete and utter hatred for sin, and his commitment to deal with it once and for all, not on his timetable. Excuse me, not on our timetable, but on his. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 gives us insight into why God is so patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason why God does not punish sin right away, that God does not judge the wicked right away, is because he is patient and loving and wants all people to come to repentance. But where is the assurance? Where is the assurance that we are counted among those when we face affliction, when we face fiery trials, that we will not face judgment, but instead are facing refinement? Where is our assurance that we are counted among those of the people of God, not those who are on the outside of God's people? The answer is found in verse 6. Verse 6, we're going to look at more next week. It says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God answer, God's answer to the question, how will I know that I am saved, is not by looking at you. It's not looking at how much you have suffered how much purification you've gone through, how much refinement you've gone through. It's not found anywhere in you or what you can do. It's found in the unchanging. It's found in the unfailing, the faithful, loving character of God. Our first Sunday in Malachi, we looked at the assurance that God has for his people. Assurance that God actually does love them in the face of all the things that they throw against him. And we saw that one of the reasons why we can be confident in God's love for us is that God loved us when we are at our most unloveliest. When we were impossible to love, God loved us anyway. And God does not change. God will not change. The love that God has for you is not rooted in anything you do, anything you can muster up in yourself, but it's rooted in God's nature. It's rooted in who God is. You see, gallons of ink have been spilled on this question. Why, how 
Can a good God allow such evil to exist in this world? The book of Malachi tells us it's a simple, clear, timeless truth. It's one we've talked about already. Jesus is God's answer to the perceived silence in the face of evil. Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that he is silent in the face of evil. You see, all evil will one day be accounted for. Our own evil will one day be accounted for through the work of Christ for us, through the refining that God puts us through in our lives because of the cross of Jesus. And the evil that is done apart from Christ will be met by justice. It will be met by judgment, by a good, righteous, holy God. Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that he is silent in the face of evil. And so as we close, just consider how might God be using affliction in your life to refine you? How might God be using affliction, pain, hardship, suffering, sickness? How might God be using those things in your life to refine you? To make you more holy? To make you more like Jesus? How might God be placing you in those seasons of difficulty in order to break down your dependence upon the world and to build up your dependence upon him? Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that he is silent in the face of evil. And so we must cling to Jesus, cling to what he has done for us in the face of evil, in the face of our own evil. Cling to Jesus in the midst of tragedy, knowing that God is good, knowing that God is faithful. Do not be like the Israelites in Malachi's day, sneering at God and his perceived silence, but instead be like the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk, after all of his asking God why and God's responses to him, just closes his book in such a powerful way. It says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Listen to all that. Though everything goes wrong, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice that you are the God of our salvation. That in your incredible, white, hot, unchanging, unfailing love for us, you allow us to go through hardship, through suffering, through pain, to make us more like you. Thank you, God. Give us the strength that doesn't come from ourselves, but comes from you to endure. To put to death the sin that dwells within us. To be refined more and more into the image of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.